Before we start, go to sashimi.cloud, sign up and receive transcripts of interviews, announcement of future guests and other relevant news. And now we start. Welcome back. For episode 10, I interviewed Tom Meister, co-founder, COO and general counsel of Nepfin, an alternative lender that provides financing solution to middle market companies. I ran into Tom's blog post about revenue-based financing and thought that SaaS founders should certainly know about this financing option. In this interview, Tom discussed RBF, typical terms of the financing, profiles of the companies that should consider this as the option, and many other things. Tom is a lawyer by training, so I feel like I need to include a disclaimer. Opinions and viewpoints expressed by Tom are his own and do not necessarily reflect opinions and viewpoints of Netfin. The interview took place several weeks ago, therefore certain viewpoints might no longer be applicable. With this, enjoy the interview. Tom, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to join you. Well, obviously, we're going to be talking about revenue-based financing because you've written this fantastic article on Medium and you're on the company that does this type of financing. But before we start, can you say a few words about yourself and Nepfin? Sure. I'll start with Nepfin. We're a capital provider to small and medium-sized businesses here in the U.S. Started originally offering cash flow-based term loans to lower middle market companies, often those that are going through uh, generational changes of control or partnering with other institutional equity investors to come in and recapitalize the business. More recently, We've seen a real need for more flexible capital solutions in sort of the lower end of the lower middle market. So really more small and medium-sized businesses. We've begun to offer this revenue-based financing product that's really meant to be uh, a way to substitute for or reduce the amount of growth equity that a company needs to bring in. You know, we're, we're very passionate about helping entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs ourselves. Uh, in terms of my own background, maybe somewhat unconventional for an entrepreneur. Uh, I began my career as a leveraged finance and structured finance attorney. So have worked in and around a number of different loan products. Originally started at some large law firms coming out of law school, went to a small business lending firm funding circle, which ended up scaling quite a bit while me and my co-founder Albert were there. Um, But really my career has been always, whether it's as as an attorney or as a business person, Uh, working at the intersection of customer-facing loan products and how they get structured and packaged into different types of, I'll just say, capital markets offerings to institutional investors. So very passionate about the credit markets, very passionate about, you know, small and medium-sized business lending and um, excited to dig in and just, you know, exchange thoughts here on on the state of the market and revenue-based financing. So what is revenue-based financing and what's behind its growth in recent years? So revenue-based financing can take a number of different forms, and we can we can dig into some of those here. But at its core, revenue-based financing, or RBF, is fundamentally a way for businesses to receive capital upfront by pledging a portion of their future revenues to an outside investor. It's normally structured as a credit product in what I've seen, meaning there's Uh, either some degree of recourse to the business or there's some obligation to make payment, even if future revenues don't materialize. Less commonly, you still might see it structured as preferred equity or as a traditional royalty that's tied to a specific asset or a portfolio of assets. Sometimes, you know, when I'm talking to an entrepreneur or uh, another uh, financing provider who's not as familiar with the product, I point to Shark Tank and Kevin O'Leary, who's one of my favorite sharks on Shark Tank, often offers entrepreneurs royalty-based financing. Uh, There's some 
distinctions there, but it, it's very, very similar to a royalty-based structure in, in most instances. I would say in terms of the, the types of products in the market, the amount of recourse will sometimes vary. And I, I would say the market is in a, a big movement right now to find better ways to deliver capital to more types of companies. So a lot of this is, is always evolving. In terms of why we've seen such growth in revenue-based financing recently, it's a good question. I think it's probably the result of a, of a few trends coming together. First, I'll say, unfortunately, we've seen a sort of secular decline in small business lending by banks coming out of the, the global financial crisis of the last decade. There are a number of reasons for this, and I, I certainly do talk to a number of banking executives who really do want to, first of all, support entrepreneurs in their communities, you know, as a sort of philosophical matter, and as a prudential matter, want to deconcentrate their bank's balance sheets away from commercial real estate assets and into CNI assets. Having said that, you know, the regulatory environment and the operational requirements for banks just make it really challenging to profitably underwrite small business loans, especially to startup companies. You know, you've got a lot of underwriting risk, a lot of compliance risk, regulatory capital requirements. And so unfortunately, I think there are a lot of great bankers out there who want to offer, you know, the types of financing that entrepreneurs need. They're just unfortunately a little hamstrung in their ability to do that. You know, at the same time, we've seen the emergence of non-bank lenders and fintechs that have cropped up to meet small business borrowing demand. I think it's now been over a decade since a lot of us got into fintech SME lending. And I don't think the final chapters on that book are anywhere close to being written, but I think we can make a few observations about what the effect of financial technology in small and medium-sized business lending has been. There was a lot of energy when I got into the space coming out of law school as an attorney, getting started at my last company, a lot of energy around democratizing SME lending by adopting peer-to-peer -peer lending models or marketplaces. And I think a lot of that energy is still there, but I, I think it's dimmed a little bit or it's certainly changed in its application. You do see some RBF platforms today that I think follow philosophical tradition of creating a marketplace for capital supply and capital demand to meet. You still see the expression of a lot of that investor populism in places like the Wall Street Bets community or uh, in the broader adoption of crypto, including by institutional equity investors. But, you know, I think in terms of where SME fintech has really had a lasting effect, it's it's not in those areas. It's really fundamentally in data capture and customer experience. There are a lot of available data sources that lenders can pull from. And I think fintechs generally, you know, both consumer and small business and medium-sized business fintechs have had a lasting effect uh, in building out the way that information is transmitted and processed by lenders. So uh, it's a lot easier now. It's a lot more frictionless, as product managers and product designers often say, for loan applicants, including small and medium-sized businesses, to apply for funding without having to literally sift through an entire stack of paperwork. And then I think lastly, you just have to take stock of the broader, I, I would say, market trends that we're observing where Business models have increasingly evolved to promote subscription revenue models and e-commerce distribution. So, you know, if I just take e-commerce first, uh, there was already a trend coming into the pandemic, you know, that preceded a, a lot of the changes we've witnessed since the pandemic of traditional brick and mortar businesses 
even ones with established brands, even ones that had highly differentiated experiential goods and services, needing to find ways to market to customers online and monetize those customers online. So, you know, I come back to how fintechs have streamlined data capture and improved customer experience. You can look at, you know, a lot of digitally native e-commerce businesses as almost the archetypal use case for these types of uh, streamlined data capture and underwriting processes to be implemented. You know, literally everything for the merchant, for an e-commerce business, their storefront, payment processing, accounting, marketing, banking, CRM, payroll, third-party logistics, billing. I'm sure there's services I'm forgetting, but all of that is already in the cloud generating structured data for a financing provider to pull in by an API. So uh, a lot of the ways that these companies are doing business naturally ports in. And then maybe most relevant for your audience is the broader movement toward subscription revenue models. Uh, there's this famous quote, and I think it's Robert Smith, the uh, CEO and founder of Vista, is supposed to have said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, businesses will pay their software subscription fees before they'll pay their first lien debt. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that logic. And honestly, uh, it holds up even when you start thinking outside of where businesses will spend money and even in the consumer space. So, um, you know, you look at the consumer discretionary sector and you, you look at Netflix or Amazon with their Amazon Prime product, and you frankly see subscription revenue models trickling into places you wouldn't expect. Think of local farms that offer CSA boxes on a subscription basis, or I look at microbreweries or kombucha companies for that matter. And, you know, the list goes on that are, that are selling on a subscription basis. And whether those types of businesses are going to be able to show consistent enough monthly or annual recurring revenue to borrow against those cash flow streams, um, I think remains an open question, at least for me. But for software subscriptions, certainly the thought is that the revenue is going to be pretty sticky, partly because um, if you're offering a service that comes at a fairly low subscription cost, but delivers a high value to the, for the customer, um, you know, a business can achieve customer diversification fairly easily and continue to maintain a high retention rate or a low churn rate with those customers. Also, in comparison to the kombucha uh, example or the CSA box, you know, software contracts can often be adjusted downward to reflect lower utilization rates. Uh, if necessary, in a way that some of these other goods and services can't. So particularly uh, when we're looking at these SaaS subscription revenue models, you get all the benefits of that easily ingested structured data that a financing provider can look at. Plus, you're looking at one of the few revenue models, I think, that is generally taken uh, as being forecastable. So you can kind of look at future revenue uh, as being relatively predictable based off of past revenue. And then increasingly with businesses flocking into this revenue model and traditional financing sources like small business banking, not providing lending options, it makes sense that you've seen a crop of lenders, you know, emerge to offer RBF, a lot of them tech enabled lenders. Um, and then, you know, of course you overlay that against the current rates environment where institutional credit investors are continuing to struggle to find yield and programs that they can programmatically invest in. And you look at it from the founder's perspective where you know, you've got this equity environment where PE sponsors, for instance, are maybe willing to move further down market that they might have a few years ago to take advantage of multiple compression, or there's other alternative exits to SPACs and strategics. So founders, you know, and, and early stage investors 
may have earlier opportunities to achieve liquidity on these companies. And it makes sense to kind of focus on non-dilutive ways of, of funding growth uh, that don't require dilution. So, you know, I, I think RBF is not always going to be kind of the right fit for that initial startup capital. Uh, and, and I often talk to entrepreneurs who are wondering if this is a way that they can get started. But if a business has achieved product market fit in subscription SaaS, e-commerce, or similar kind of high growth, high margin businesses, and those businesses need to fund customer acquisition or fulfillment, it makes a lot of sense to turn to an RBF financing solution and fund that customer acquisition or that growth with debt rather than dilutive equity today. And then when they do raise outside equity, or when they do realize some liquidity on a sale or go public event, you know, they haven't diluted their ownership and they get the benefit of a higher valuation that reflects the growth they funded with RBF. So let's talk a little bit about the typical profile of the company that want to take this loan. You mentioned that it's supposed to have a product market fit already. It has to figure out the overall direction of the company. But in terms of size, how big should be the company's MRR or ARR? Good question. I would say it, it runs the gamut a bit depending on the RBF financing product that the, the company is going to be drawing. I would say within the kind of term or revolving recurring revenue product set. For term, I think probably at a minimum, the business needs to be doing about 120000 in annual recurring revenue. It's important for the business to have very healthy margins because they're paying back their financing out of future revenue. For the lenders that do provide you know, longer term facilities or revolving credit facilities, the amount of MRR that the business needs to be generating Maybe a little bit higher, maybe in the hundred thousand to two hundred thousand dollar plus range, you know, for monthly recurring revenue, and annual revenue thresholds might be a little bit higher. Those, you know, longer dated or revolving lenders may also have their own specific requirements around minimum customer or revenue retention rates that need to be met. That's probably the kind of rough guidelines I give you on a recurring revenue loan. One other thing I, I might just say is, you know, for cash burning businesses. That can be okay. And I think that's often a very good use case for an RBF facility. But your RBF lender is going to want to look at your cash runway. And part of their analysis is going to be whether you're bringing in this accretive growth capital in a way that's supposed to grow your top line revenue. But if for some reason that growth is, as lenders often say, slower and lower than you expect, um, will the business still be able to service the debt without running out of cash in the meantime? And so, you know, analysis of your operating expenses and, and your, your cash position and your runway projections will be important if you're a cash burning business as well. Makes sense. Let's dive in into the typical terms for this type of loan for SaaS companies in particular. How would quantum of the loan determined? For a SaaS RBF borrower, I'd say the market is getting increasingly favorable for borrowers, but I think the norm is to typically provide about three times to four times monthly recurring revenue, or call it you know, 25 to 33% of ARR uh, at the high end. You know, Some lenders, no doubt, will offer more. Some of those lenders may require warrant coverage to do so. Uh, and some lenders may offer less depending on considerations like your cash burn position if, if you're not a, a profitable company yet. You know, other things that are going to drive kind of what quantum of funding you are eligible for for a SaaS business are going to be, you know, what is your customer churn historically? And frankly, because you're you're making 
payment against the repayment amount of your loan out of future revenue, it's going to be really important that you're not having to spend up a bunch on kind of new marketing initiatives to acquire new customers. And it's going to be important that your existing customers stay with you and don't downgrade. So if you're not sort of firing on all cylinders as a business, that three times to four times MRR, 25 to 33% high end of availability, you know, your RBF lender may want to start smaller, kick the tires on how the business is actually working. And ideally, if things go to plan, that RBF provider is going to want to upsize the facility and may be able to take a more aggressive uh, advance rate or, or a higher quantum relative to your MRR or ARR. But there's often some, some variables here to consider that can kind of move those numbers around. And these are typically the lines or the term loans? These are for term loans. So there are kind of three dominant products I see for RBF. There's kind of a, uh, what I typically see is this kind of a merchant cash advance or MCA model for e-commerce businesses. There's the term loan product that I was kind of honing in on um, that we offer. And, and I would say, you know, is, is kind of the more conventional, probably RBF product for SaaS businesses and, and what I see. Uh, and then there are line of credit products you know, SaaS capital comes to mind as a, as a great option there. And then a lot of the technology banks, I think, are offering lines of credit as well, especially if your business has some venture capital backing in your capital table. I think, you know, in comparison to the term RBF product or the kind of MCA uh, RBF product, the lines, um, I look at them as kind of, you know, essentially a variation on a borrowing base revolving credit facility where for, I'll say kind of more traditional type businesses that would borrow against their receivables. In this case, the business is borrowing against its MRR, usually net of churn. These can be longer dated. So two or three year facilities, um, but they're really kind of bridging working capital needs. I, I see it rather than sort of funding long-term debt. So they can get into teens, certainly double digit kind of interest expense levels. But I look at those as being more of a working capital solution and maybe less of a growth capital solution. But net, there are working capital lines of credit as well. Let's talk about the term loans then, because they might be applicable to some listeners who are bootstrapped. You know, I, I think the structure is is a royalty type structure typically. So one thing I guess I'd, I'd reiterate for an entrepreneur that's bootstrapping is that I think the right time to utilize a term RBF product is not when you're first starting out. This is not the right product typically as your first dollar in. And this is why a lot of those thresholds are set to make sure that you've generated some minimum amount of either annual revenue or some minimum amount of monthly recurring revenue. But net, you know, I think it works best when the entrepreneur has at least achieved product market fit and now needs to fund either marketing or fulfillment, but there's some growth initiative that needs to be funded. So the lender will typically structure their repayment amount, not as accrued interest, but as a repayment multiple of what they funded. For instance, they may say that you will receive 50,000 today in exchange for paying back $60,000 over the next year and monthly payments. And that 60,000, that 1.2 times multiple, it doesn't accrue. I mean, that's due and payable, you know, after the RBF lender funds the loan. Now, how the business makes payment against that 1.2 times payment multiple, the 60,000, is that they'll provide some reporting to their RBF lender, you know, typically monthly, maybe semi-monthly on their cash receipts. Um, they may have some 
you know, additional covenants or reporting obligations to report on as well. And the RBF provider will take a specified percentage each month of the cash revenue that the company receives. And so in this example, the $60,000, you're having monthly repayments applied against that amount, really with the expectation that, you know, for most RBF lenders, they're sizing the loan and they're calibrating the monthly revenue share rate in such a way that, you know, they're expecting that the final repayment is going to take place on sort of the, the 12th month in this example of the loan. But of course, there is some variability. And, you know, again, things tend to be sort of lower and slower than than folks expect in terms of top line revenue growth materializing. Um, so the RBF lender is partly calibrating that revenue share rate to make sure that the business still has sufficient margin to operate the business after paying the RBF lender without creating a situation where you are either long dating a facility by offering a much longer repayment term, which can sometimes mask problems and create a bad scenario for the entrepreneur and the lender because you know, you're going to have to work out or restructure that loan at some point. On the other hand, if you're sizing the loan too small and maybe having too high of a monthly repayment rate, you know, it can produce a great IRR for the lender, but you've also probably underfunded a borrower that you'd like to have in your portfolio for longer. So, you know, I I think kind of metrics uh, tend to be just kind of rough guidelines. A lot of this is really the entrepreneur and the RBF lender coming to the table and kind of talking through the different toggles for the business and kind of what drives operating costs, what drives top line revenue growth and understanding kind of base case downside scenario and really the growth model that the entrepreneur is looking at. But in short, maybe to recap, you're looking at a term loan facility. So it is a loan. It's not a purchase of future revenue like you might see in the e-commerce context. And you're making payment against a fixed repayment amount out of monthly, maybe semi-monthly uh, revenue share that you're passing back to your lender, typically by a, an ACH payment. So it's structured as a one-year loan then? Uh, the term on these loans can vary. You know, you'll see them as short as sometimes less than a year. Some, some you'll see as long as maybe four or five years. Often, just the nature of startup companies is the business is either going to hit their kind of ambitious projections and they'll be re-upping or they'll be repaying you very quickly, or they won't, in which case you know, there's going to need to be a, a comeback to the table on both sides to make sure that, you know, everybody's um, doing what they can to get the situation righted. But it can really vary depending on the quantum of debt, the use of proceeds. You know, some uses of proceeds will take longer to generate revenue than others. Um, and some lenders will be more excited about, you know, funding that kind of longer term growth than others. And you use uh, 1.2 as an example of multiple. Is it the typical multiple or it, I'm guessing it varies, but what's the typical range? It really does vary. You know, I think typically for a non-RBF or excuse me, a non-bank RBF provider, I would say you're talking to somebody who is trying to provide an, an equity substitution product and generate, you know, double digit returns. So I would think kind of high teens to 20s types of, of IRR. That can vary. And I'll, I'll say, you know, for a lot of the revolving RBF lenders I know, I often do see them charge interest as accrued interest, not in this kind of repayment multiple concept. But for the term uh, RBF folks I see, um, you know, I think they're targeting, yeah, probably a gross IRR, typically in the, I would say maybe high teens to high 20s, you know, again, consistent with RBF being an equity substitution product. You know, I think in terms of the revenue share rate or the royalty rate that they're honing in on, 
That really is going to depend on the term of the loan and the business margins that they're looking at. It's probably going to be 10% plus or minus a couple of percentage points is what I typically see. But again, that can that can really vary there. 10% of revenue. Yeah. You know, I think probably kind of in the high single digit percentage points is gotcha. um, for a software subscription business kind of being priced in that mid 20s to low 20s range, probably what I would typically see. So basically for people to figure out the cost of this capital, if the term is one year, they should assume that it's about 10, 15%. Roughly, the fact that it's it's not quantified as a accrued interest concept, I think that gives rise to some of the more important kind of partnership conversations between term RBF providers and entrepreneurs. Because fundamentally, the cost of capital in this product is going to depend on how quickly the business generates revenue. You know, a lot of us are in this business because we like working with entrepreneurs. A lot of us are entrepreneurs ourselves. But we're also lenders, right? So our upside on investments as RBF lenders is typically capped. And we tend to focus more than entrepreneurs and equity investors on downside protection. But when you're working through the repayment structure with an entrepreneur, there is this natural understanding that needs to form in order for the deal to make sense, where the entrepreneurs understandably have a lot of confidence and optimism about their business. They look at the repayment multiple and that repayment amount, that revenue share amount, and they, they're assuming hockey stick growth in their top line revenue, right? So they think they're going to pay back the loan super quickly, which means a higher R for the RBF lender and a high APR effectively for the business. You know, lenders by comparison are expecting that kind of slower and lower growth in a lot of deals. You know, they may be worried as they go through their internal review process that the business may not be able to pay back the loan organically out of top line revenue during the stated term. And so now they'll be carrying some refinancing or recapitalization risk. A lot of this is really coming to a good understanding or a good agreement between the entrepreneur and the lender about what happens if the business either generates higher than expected revenues from the lender's perspective or the lender's base case scenario, and what happens if the business generates lower than expected revenues. And you know, I think that there are a number of different ways that term RBF providers can deal with that. So they can, for instance, decrease the revenue share rate if the business is generating above a certain revenue amount, or they may, for instance, decrease the repayment multiple uh, if the business is going to repay the loan in full more quickly. And that provides the business and that provides the entrepreneur, I would say, a little bit of upside protection. They're not just paying this very high effective APR, but you know, I think the corresponding discussion that often comes up then is, you know, how is the lender going to then address some of the downside risk of if revenue is is slower to materialize? That can sometimes give rise to, you know, step ups, for instance, in the royalty or revenue share rate, or that may require that there be some minimum payment kind of midstream in the life of the loan to make sure that the lender is not carrying, you know, this recapitalization or refinancing risk on the back end. But Fundamentally, it's a product where the lender and the entrepreneur need to have, I think, good alignment on what the actual forecasted revenue will be and making sure that the bells and whistles in the deal sufficiently align interests if that revenue is higher or lower than expected. What happens if it is determined that the company is going out of business? Is IP pledged to the lender or no? In a typical term RBF loan, there's a security interest that's taken. So, it, And that tends to be kind of a, a typical 
you know, all assets lean in the business, including mm-hmm. IP, you know, for the e-commerce kind of MCA product, that's because it's structured as a purchase of future revenue. This can vary, but but often if the business doesn't work out, not because of the entrepreneur breaching one of the covenants in their in their revenue purchase agreement, the MCA is typically kind of out of luck and, and has to deal with it. But there is a security interest granted to most term RBF lenders. You know, I think when you're looking at what happens in a downside scenario, there is real risk here. I mean, again, this is an equity substitution product. So if the business had good financeable collateral, um, I normally recommend to entrepreneurs that have equipment to do equipment financing, or if they're, for instance, a B2B company that has receivables to get a a receivables line or, or go to a factor, there is real risk there because even if you have that security interest in the IP, or I'll just take the e-commerce businesses, for instance, even if you're able to come in and take the inventory in a downside scenario, you know, the entrepreneur and the team at the company is going to be the best position to market and sell those assets. So there's not some fungible market for this type of collateral. So yes, you do typically as a term RBF provider, get the security interest. And, you know, you are looking at that collateral as a potential way out of the deal if it doesn't work out. But I wouldn't even say it's like a secondary or tertiary source of repayment if the business doesn't work out typically. Got it. I'm assuming there is no covenants for this type of business. You just have to meet your projections. Yeah. And, and here I'll answer it maybe more specifically than is, is interesting by kind of pointing to kind of what I've seen, I guess, in legal documents across the, the months and years here. But across the board, even in the MCA e-commerce product, there's almost always the usual set of affirmative and negative covenants that you see in in RBF deals, whether that's the MCA product, whether that's the term RBF product, whether that's the revolving line. And essentially the business is going to promise to keep the RBF provider apprised of changes in its business operations, you know, its address, its org structure, its payment and bank account structures. It's going to, you know, have typical negative covenants where it promises not to take out additional debt or encumber the business with liens or pay out extraordinary dividends or comp that's not going to sell assets outside the ordinary course of business. And, you know, across these different products, you'll typically have reporting obligations, affirmative covenants to provide information on cash collections or booked MRR. Sometimes, you know, the business has to prepare that reporting itself. Oftentimes lenders try to make it easy for the business to pull this information from third-party software providers. You know, you do see some, I'll say sometimes more specific covenants or events of default across these products. So you may see in the e-commerce MCA product kind of consistent with a lot of MCA documents that if the merchant tries to change its revenue collection methods to avoid the MCA being able to come in and attach to split out daily payments, that'll be an event of default for you know, term RBF lenders, some will not have specific financial covenants, but but many do. Like for a cash burning business, you might see a minimum liquidity covenant to make sure that the business doesn't run out of cash before fully repaying the loan. You may also see kind of max churn or minimum customer retention covenants. Um, you may see those as well for some revolving RBF lenders. And then, you know, you get to the larger end of the market, you start to kind of creep up into the high six figures, low seven figures plus range. And it should tell you sort of how much the market has matured that there are RBF solutions for folks at that stage really to supplant the need for growth equity. Uh, But some of those term RBF lenders, 
Um, you know, they may require that key team members like the founders and management team sign non-compete and non-solicitation agreements, like similar to what an equity investor would require, right? They don't want the founders to just throw the keys and start a competitive business. And they may bake in events of default that essentially get triggered if the founders or key employees of the business leave. So again, there's there's some variability within the market here, but it's not, you know, the complete absence of covenants. Do founders have to guarantee it personally? It really depends based on the lender and the business. For some businesses, they may not be able to obtain RBF financing just based off of their historical financials and their projections. And so a lender may require some degree of recourse to the founders, uh, especially if those founders have personal assets that are substantial enough to provide a second way out for the lender. You know, I think generally the better credit quality lenders are going to go kind of lesser on the amount of recourse, but it really depends deal by deal. So for bootstrapped companies where a revenue-based financing was taken and is in place, when they decide to raise capital from venture capitalists, what's the general attitude of venture capitalists to this company? Is it considered to be weaker because it wasn't able to obtain a regular loan from a bank? It's a first question. And second question, when and if they decide to invest, do they immediately repay that loan or they keep it in place? Yeah, part of this ends up turning on, for lack of a better word, the venture capital investors basis in the company or what stage they invested, right? I think a lot of early stage VCs are increasingly um, not just tolerant, but you know, I, I would say supportive of businesses utilizing RBF because they're very aligned with the founders, right? If, if that company has achieved product market fit, they're looking at how do they continue to fund growth. Oftentimes, I think earlier stage VCs are wanting the business to find non-dilutive ways to fund it so that again, they can raise or they can exit it at a, at a higher multiple that's reflective of that growth. I think for folks that come in on the later stage, you know, whether they're growth equity investors or they're they're coming in at some intermediate point along the way, I do not think there's there's any kind of negative signaling effect. I don't think the fact that they haven't obtained bank financing is a negative signaling effect. You know, often if you have VCs in your cap table, yeah, there are still the typical technology banks out there that will offer, you know, kind of no covenant or light covenant loans with some warrant coverage for runway extension purposes. But that's, you know, that's different than an RBF loan, right? You know, and, and RBF lenders are sometimes willing to subordinate their loans to those senior bank lenders. I think it's a product that can coexist with other types of senior financing, like bank loans, if, if it makes sense. Now, in terms of whether the later stage VC investors are funding the repayment of an RBF facility out of their new equity uh, investment, at least in, in my view, I, I think that's pretty uncommon simply because you're refinancing out what is admittedly like a expensive debt, you know, compared to a bank loan, but with even more expensive equity. So what'll often be the case is the business is just going to organically pay it out. If they're doing well enough that they're able to bring in that that equity, they're often doing well enough that they're going to repay their RBF facility in the ordinary course. Um, having said that, you know, I think if there's some stub amount, you know, that re refi recap risk that I talked about, I think an equity investor that's wanting to come in at a growth stage of a growing company, you know, I think you do occasionally see that, but maybe more the exception than the rule. Great. And perhaps my last question, who are some better known RBF providers out there on the market? Sure. I'll, I'll just try to quickly go through the kind of three buckets that I've touched on. So I think for the e-commerce space, ClearCo, which is ClearBank recently rebranded to, to ClearCo, 
Square and Stripe are all well-known. They've all got a bunch of, of great data. You know, Square and Stripe have the payment data themselves. ClearCo plugs in and, you know, for e-commerce folks, they can even provide now, I think, inventory financing by plugging into 3PL management software. So I think there's some really, really great financing providers at that end of the market. You know, I think for revolving lines, SaaS Capital certainly comes to mind. A lot of the technology banks out there, SVB, PacWest and the like, especially if you got a VC in your cap table, I think is a good place to look. For term RBF, which is, you know, kind of our space, I'll obviously kind of give the uh, the NetFin plug and we always love to, to talk to entrepreneurs. But, you know, in terms of other firms in the market, Lighter Capital is in many ways a firm that I view as one of the early leaders in the space. And, and I mean that both in terms of kind of establishing kind of the market and, and market terms and also providing thought leadership to entrepreneurs in terms of how this product works. I'll say I have a ton of respect for what the folks behind that platform built and folks who are at Lighter, folks who have gone on since Lighter. There's some really, really great platforms out there that have come out of the Lighter alumni universe, but Lighter's a great firm and hold the folks from that firm in very high regard. Pipe uh, is a fairly recent uh, entrant into the RBF space. And I think uh, they're building you know, more of a marketplace model from what I understand for companies to finance MRR and ARR. So I kind of look at them as uh, in many ways, kind of the intellectual successor to to what you know some of the early kind of peer-to-peer marketplaces were doing. Bigfoot Capital is another firm in the term RBF space that I've heard good things about. Cap Chase as well. You know, at the larger end of the market in terms of check size, I have started to see some of the lower middle market cash flow lenders at least indicate that they're starting to look at deals in this space. One of the firms that I think has done a really nice job carving out a role for themselves at the at the larger end of the market in terms of company and check size is Decathlon Capital. They're, from what I've seen, very sophisticated. They've got a lot of experience as traditional VCs helping companies to grow and succeed. So, you know, I think of them as companies get to kind of larger needs in terms of check sizes as a, as a really good option as well. But you're kind enough to mention that Medium post that I did a few weeks ago. I, I think RBF is very much experiencing a moment right now. So there are always new competitors, it seems, entering the space. And, you know, that's kind of a natural competitive tension that can sometimes come up between firms. But, you know, the opportunity set is massive, I think. So I'm really rooting for everybody uh, in the space. And I think there are a lot of great options out there for for businesses that that search around. And I think the competition at the end of the day is really going to be a benefit to the entrepreneurs. You know, and I think if this trend toward e-commerce and subscription revenue models keeps up, um, I think you're only going to see more and more RBF platforms come up and better terms, more flexible products for borrowers. But those are some of the folks that I would certainly recommend. I'm probably forgetting some great ones too. But You don't need to advertise all your competitors. So. <laughs> Tom, oh, thank you very much for being on the podcast. 